Lover or Friend by Rosa Carey Chapter 1 The Blake Family are discussed. There is nothing, sir, too little, for so little a creature as man. It is by studying little things that we attain the great art of having as little misery and as much happiness as possible. Dr. Johnson Everyone in Rutherford knew that Mrs. Ross was ruled by her eldest daughter. It was an acknowledged fact, obvious not only to a keen-witted person like Mrs. Charrington, the headmaster's wife, but even to the minor intelligence of Johnny Deans, the youngest boy at Woodcott. It was not that Mrs. Ross was a feeble-minded woman. In her own way, she was sensible, clear-sighted, with plenty of common sense, but she was a little disposed to lean on a stronger nature. And even when Geraldine was in the schoolroom, her energy and youthful vigor began to assert themselves. Her opinions insensibly influenced her mother's, until at last they swayed her entirely. If this were the case when Geraldine was a mere girl, it was certainly not altered when the crowning glories of matronhood were added to her other perfections. Six months ago, Geraldine Ross had left her father's house to become the wife of Mr. Harcourt of Hillside, and in becoming the mistress of one of the coveted Hill houses, Geraldine had not yet consented to lay down the scepter of her home rule. Mrs. Ross had acquiesced cheerfully to this arrangement. She had lost her right hand in losing Geraldine, and during the brief honeymoon both she and her younger daughter, Audrey, felt as though the home machinery was somewhat out of gear. No arrangement could be effected without a good deal of wondering on Mrs. Ross's part as to what Geraldine might think of it, and without a lengthy letter being written on the subject. It was a relief, at last, to her mother's mind, when young Mrs. Harcourt returned, and without a word took up the reins again. No one disputed her claims. Now and then there would be a lazy protest from Audrey, a concealed sarcasm that fell blunted beneath the calm amiability of the elder sister. Geraldine was always perfectly good-tempered. The sense of propriety that guided all her actions never permitted her to grow hot in argument. When a person is always in the right, as young Mrs. Harcourt believed herself to be, the small irritations of daily life fall very harmlessly. It is possible for a man to be so cased in armour that even a pinprick of annoyance will not find ingress. It is true, the armour may be a little stifling and somewhat inconvenient for workaday use, but it is a grand thing to be saved from pricks. Mrs. Harcourt was presiding at the little tea-table in the woodcut drawing-room. There were only two other persons in the room. It was quite an understood thing that the young mistress of Hillside should walk over to Woodcott two or three afternoons in the week to give her mother the benefit of her society, and also to discuss any little matter that might have arisen during her brief absence. Mrs. Harcourt was an exceedingly handsome young woman. In fact, many thought her lovely. She had well-cut features, a good complexion, with a soft, delicate colouring that only perfect health ever gives and a figure that was at once graceful and dignified. To add to all these attractions, she understood the art of dressing herself. Her gowns always fitted her to perfection. She was always attired suitably, and though vanity and self-consciousness were not her natural foibles, she had a feminine love of pretty things, and considered it a wifely duty to please the eyes of her lord and master. Mrs. Harcourt had the old-fashioned sugar-tongs in her hand, and was balancing them lightly for a moment. It is quite true, mother, she said decisively, as she dropped the sugar into the shallow teacup. Mrs. Ross looked up from her knitting. My dear Geraldine, I do hope you are mistaken, she returned anxiously. 
Mrs. Ross had also been a very pretty woman, and even now she retained a good deal of pleasant, middle-aged comeliness. She was somewhat stout, and had grown a little inactive in consequence. But her expression was soft and motherly, and she had the unmistakable air of a gentlewoman. In her husband's eyes, she was still handsomer than her daughter's, and Dr. Ross flattered himself that he had made the all-important choice of his life more wisely than other men. My dear mother, how is it possible to be mistaken? returned her daughter with a shade of reproof in her voice. I told you that I had a long talk with Edith. Michael, I have made your tea. I think it's just as you like it, with no infusion of tannin, as you call it. And she turned her head slowly, so as to bring into view the person she was addressing, and who, seated at a little distance, had taken no part in the conversation. He was a thin, pale man of about five or six and thirty, with a reddish moustache. As he crossed the room in response to this invitation, he moved with an air of languor that amounted to lassitude, and a slight limp was discernible. His features were plain. Only a pair of clear blue eyes, with a peculiarly searching expression, distinguished him from a hundred men of the same type. These eyes were not always pleasant to meet. Certain people felt disagreeably in their inner consciousness, and Captain Burnett could read them too accurately. No fellow has a right to look you through and through, as one young staff officer observed. It is taking a liberty with a man. Burnett always seems as though he was trying to turn a fellow inside out, to get at the other side of him. Not a very eloquent description of a would-be philosopher who loved to dabble a little in human foibles. I've been listening to the Blake discussion, he said coolly as he took the offered cup. What a wonderful woman you are, Gage. You have a splendid talent for organization, and even a thorough-paced scandal has to be organized. Scandal? What are you talking about, Michael? Your talent for organization, even in trifles, he returned promptly. I'm using the word advisedly. I have just been reading De Quincey's definition of talent and genius. He says, now pray listen, Gage, that talent is intellectual power of every kind, which acts and manifests itself by and through the will and the active forces. Genius, as the verbal origin implies, is that much rarer species of intellectual power which is derived from the genial nature, from the spirit of suffering and enjoying, from the spirit of pleasure and pain, as organized more or less perfectly, and this is independent of the will. It is a function of the passive nature. Talent is conversant with the adaptation of means to ends, but genius is conversant only with ends. My dear Michael, I have no doubt that all this is exceedingly clever, and that your memory is excellent, but why are we to be crushed between all this analysis? I was only drawing a comparison between you and Audrey, he replied tranquilly. I have been much struck by the idea involved in the word genial. I had no conception we could evolve genius out of it. Audrey is a very genial person. She also, in De Quincey's words, moves in headlong sympathy and concurrence with spontaneous power. This is his definition, mark you. I lay no claim to it. Genius works under a rapture of necessity and spontaneity. I do love that expression, headlong sympathy. It so well expresses the way Audrey works. Mrs. Harcourt gave a little assenting shrug. She was not quite pleased with the turn the conversation had taken. Abstract ideas were not to her taste. The play of words in which Captain Burnett delighted bored her excessively. She detected, too, a spice of irony. The comparison between her and Audrey was not a flattering one. She was far cleverer than Audrey. Her masters and governesses would have acknowledged that fact. 
and yet her cousin Michael was giving the divine gift of genius to her more scantily endowed sister. Genius. But of course, it was only Michael's nonsense. He would say anything when he was in the humor for disputation. Even her own Percival had these contentious moods. The masculine mind liked to play with moral ninepins, to send all kinds of exploded theories rolling with a little ball of wit that sharpened their argumentative faculties and kept them bright and ready for use. Mother and I were talking about these tiresome Blakes, not of Audrey, she said in a calm, matter-of-fact tone. If you were listening, Michael, you must have heard the whole account of my conversation with Mrs. Bryce. Oh, you mean Harcourt's sister, with whom you have been staying. Did I not tell you that I had heard every word and was admiring your admirable tactics, the way in which you marshalled your forces of half-truths and implied verities and small-mounted theories was grand, absolutely grand. Mrs. Harcourt was silent for a moment. Michael was very trying. He often exercised her patience most severely. But there was a threefold reason for her forbearance. First, he was her father's cousin, and beloved by him as his own son would have been if he had ever had one. Secondly, his ill health entitled him to a good deal of consideration from any kind-hearted woman. And thirdly, and perhaps principally, he had the reputation for saying and doing odd, out-of-the-way things, and a man who moves in an eccentric circle of his own is never on other people's plane, and therefore some allowance must be made for him. Mrs. Harcourt could, however, have heartily endorsed Mrs. Carlyle's opinion of her gifted son and applied it to her cousin. He was ill to live with. Somehow one loves this honest, shrewd criticism of the old North Country woman, the homely body who smoked short black pipes in the chimney corner, but whom Carlyle loved and venerated from the bottom of his big heart. Ill to live with, perhaps Michael Burnett, with his injured health and Victoria Cross, and the purpose of his life all marred and frustrated, was not the easiest person in the world. Mrs. Harcourt was silent for an instant, but she never permitted herself to be ruffled, so she went on in her smooth voice. I felt it was my duty to repeat to Mother all that Edith, I mean Mrs. Bryce, told me about the Blakes. Please do not be so formal. I infinitely prefer that fine princess-like name of Edith, remarked Michael, with a lazy twinkle in his eyes. But Mrs. Harcourt would not condescend even to notice the interruption. Mrs. Bryce, with a pointed emphasis on the name, was much concerned when she heard that my father had engaged Mr. Blake for his classical master. And why so? demanded Captain Bennett a little sharply. He has taken a good degree. Dr. Roth seems perfectly satisfied with him. Oh, there is nothing against the young man. He is clever and pleasant and very good-looking. It is only the mother who is so objectionable. Perhaps I'm putting it too strongly. Only Mrs. Bryce and her husband did not like her. They say she is a very unsatisfactory person and so difficult to understand. Poor Mrs. Blake, ejaculated her cousin, to be judged before the Bryce Tribunal and found wanting. Don't be ridiculous, Michael, replied Mrs. Harcourt in her good-tempered way. Of course you take her part, simply because she is accused. You are like Audrey in that. You see, we are both genial persons, but seriously, Mrs. Blake's list of misdemeanours seems absurdly trifling. She is very handsome. That is misdemeanour number one, I believe. My dear, observed Mrs. Ross placidly at this point, for she had been too busy counting her stitches to concern herself with the strife of words. Geraldine only mentioned it as a fact. 
She remarked that Mrs. Blake was a very prepossessing person, that she had rather an uncommon type of beauty. That makes her all the more interesting, murmured Captain Bennett, with his eyes half-closed. I begin to feel quite excited about this, Mrs. Blake. I do delight in anything out of the common. Oh, Edith never denied that she was fascinating. She is a clever woman, too. Only there were certain little solecisms committed that made her think Mrs. Blake was not a thorough gentlewoman. They are undoubtedly very poor, and though of course that is no objection, it is so absurd for people in such a position to try and ignore their little shifts and contrivances. Honest poverty is to be respected, but not when it is allied to pretension. My dear Gage, was it you or Mrs. Bryce who made that exceedingly clever speech? It was really worthy of Dr. Johnson. It only wanted a sir to point the doctor's style. Sir, honest poverty is to be respected, but not when it is allied to pretension. A good thorough Johnsonian speech, and so the poor woman is poor? Yes, but no one minds that, returned Mrs. Harcourt, somewhat hastily. I hope you do not think that anything in her outward circumstances has prejudiced my sister-in-law against her. As far as that goes, Mrs. Blake deserves credit. She has denied herself comforts, even to give her son a good education. No, it is something contradictory in the woman herself that made the Bryces say they would never get on with her. She is impulsive, absurdly impulsive, and yet at the same time she is reserved. She has a bad temper. At least Edith declares she has heard her scolding her servant in no measured terms, and then she is so injudicious with her children. She absolutely adores her eldest son, Cyril, but Edith will have it that she neglects her daughter. And there is an invalid boy, too, a very interesting little fellow. At least I don't know how old he is, and she is not too attentive to him. Housekeeping worries her, and she is fond of society, and I know the Bryces think that she would marry again if she got the chance. Let the younger widows marry. I hope you do not mean to contradict St. Paul. Have you quite finished the indictment, Gage? Be it known unto the inhabitants of Rutherford that a certain seditious and dangerous person of the name of Blake is about to take up her residence in the town, the list of her misdemeanours being as follows, to wit, as they say in old chronicles, an uncommon style of beauty, an inclination to replace the deceased Mr. Blake, imperfect temper, impulsiveness, tempered with reserve, unconventionality of habit, poverty, combined with pretentiousness, and a disposition to slight her maternal duties, really a most interesting person. Michael, of course you say that to provoke me. Please don't listen to him, mother. You understand me if no one else does. You know it is Audrey of whom I am thinking. Yes, turning to her cousin. You may amuse yourself with turning all my speeches into ridicule, but in your heart you agree with me. I have often heard you lecturing Audrey on her impulsiveness and want of common sense. It will be just like her to strike up a violent friendship with Mrs. Blake. You know how she takes these sudden fancies, and father is quite as bad. I dare say they will both discover she is charming before twenty-four hours are over. That is why I am begging Mother to be very prudent and keep the Blakes at a distance. You agree, of course, Cousin Emmeline? Well, my dear, I don't quite like the account Geraldine gives me. Mrs. Bryce is a very shrewd person. She is not likely to make mistakes. I think I shall give Audrey a hint, unless you prefer to do so, Geraldine. I think it will come better for me, mother. You see, I shall just retail Edith's words. Audrey is a little difficult to manage sometimes. She likes to form her own notions of people. There is no time to be lost if they are coming in tomorrow. I thought your father said it was today that they were expected. No, I am positive Percival said tomorrow. I know the old servant, and some of the furniture arrived at the grey cottage two days ago. 
Captain Bennett looked up quickly, as though he were about to speak, and then changed his mind and went on with his occupation, which was teaching a small brown dachshund the Gladstone trick. No, Booty, when I say Lord Salisbury, you are to eat the sugar, but not before. Ah, here comes the bone of contention, he went on in a purposely loud tone as a shadow darkened the window, and the next minute a tall young lady stepped over the low sill into the room. Were you talking about me? she asked in a clear voice as she looked around at them. How do you do, Gage? Have you been here all the afternoon? How is Percival? No more tea, thank you. I have just had some here at the Blakes. At the Blakes? exclaimed her sister, in a horror-stricken tone, unable to believe her ears. Yes, I heard they had come in last night, so I thought it would be only neighbourly to call and see if one could do anything for them. I met father on the hill, and he quite proved. Mrs. Blake sends her compliments to mother. And as only an awful silence answered her, she continued innocently. I'm sure you and Gage will like her. She is charming, perfectly charming, the nicest person I've seen for a long time, finished Audrey, with delightful unconsciousness of the sensation she was creating. 